Esther chapter 3. And we're going to be working our way through this chapter this morning. Just a little bit of a review to kind of lay the foundation here for us. King Ahasuerus was the king of Persia at the time of Esther. And he, in very bad circumstances there, in the first chapter we see that he had a big party, gets drunk, and and he makes some unwise choices, and he ends up putting away his wife, and his uh, queen Vashti, and disposed her from being queen, and said, you're not going to be queen anymore. And then in chapter 2 we saw how the... uh, there was a contest among the, all the beautiful women of Persia. And it was a contest to see who would be the next queen. And the king would choose of all the beautiful young women of the kingdom. And remember, the kingdom was a vast kingdom. It's important we catch that because it's important. It went from, it said from Ethiopia in the south, so it included Egypt. And so Ethiopia, all the way up through Palestine, so all of Israel, all the way up through Turkey, Uh, over to the edge of Greece, all the way across through Iran and Iraq and Pakistan and Afghanistan, all the way over to the border of India. It was a big area, 127 provinces. And that was his kingdom. So all these beautiful women from all these provinces came in, and he was choosing, and we find that there was a young Jewish girl named Esther or Hadassah, who was chosen to be the next queen. And so she's on the throne. We saw at the end of chapter 2 that uh, her uncle, who raised her because her parents were dead, uh, he was sitting in the gate of the king, and in his duties that he was doing there, he overheard two rascals that were planning to kill the king. And he reported it to Esther. Esther told the king, the king Uh, had it investigated, and sure enough, they were found guilty and executed for their plot. And that's where we left off last week. Now, in chapter 3, it starts out with these words, after these things. That's an interesting phrase, because all through the early parts of this book, we see similar phrases. Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, in those days. And chapter uh, 2 and verse 1, it says, after these things. Chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, so it came to pass. In chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, in those days. And now here in chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, after these things. What it's doing here is these little w- words of encouragement are letting us know there's progress being made. And as we see these little casual comments after these things, it it's interesting that the things that are about to take place were not just little dramas. I found it very interesting. Charles Swindoll made this comment about this passage here. He says that uh, that's the way it is in life. The big events in our lives, the major turning points, don't begin with a bold, ear-splitting announcement from heaven. Today will be the day of trouble, bad trouble. No, these, those days begin like Every other morning, you have no idea it's coming, and out of the blue, it strikes. And that's really what we're seeing here. It's just after these things, and then bang, a big problem comes upon us. And we're going to see this. This big problem began because King Ahasuerus promoted a man named Haman. We see in verse number 1 there of chapter 3, it says, And after these things, the king Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of 
Hamadotha or Hamadatha, uh, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Uh, were, that were with him. So that's Haman. Haman was a rascal. He was not a good guy, and we see that very clearly as things progress here. He was promoted to this place of almost prime minister. I mean, he was above all the other princes of the kingdom. He was at the top. So there was the king and then him. He was next to the king in the kingdom. And Haman here is a very proud and haughty type of a man. He struts around like a peacock, uh, bragging of his greatness and his goodness, just kind of like the king did. And here he's... He's causing trouble in all the people of the kingdom. When they get, when he starts coming, they all bow to the ground and they do him uh, uh, honor by bowing to the ground. And that is all except one man, Mordecai. Mordecai says, "No, I'm not going to bow to him." And as a result, the king's servants said, "Mordecai, you're not bowing to Haman. I mean, that's an, that's against the law. You better behave yourself, or you're going to get." Hurt. Aren't you going to stay? And he said, no, I'm not going to bother him. I'm a Jew. And day after day, they'd say to him, Haman, Haman's coming, Mordecai, you better bow. One of these days you're going to get caught. And he says, no, I'm not going to bow. I'm a Jew. And he, he stood firm with his conviction. And as days went by, finally, word got out to Haman. Now Haman knew that Mordecai wasn't bound. He walked by and look over there. And here's Haman standing. Everybody else is kissing the ground by him. And, Haman, and Mordecai is still standing there. And Haman is furious. He's angry inside. He, is, he says, oh, I've got to get rid of that guy somehow, somewhere. I'm going to get rid of him. But he says, because he's a Jew, I'm not going to just get rid of him. I'm going to get rid of every Jew that's alive. I'm going to exterminate the Jews. I got a plan. I got a plot. And Haman devises his plan. And then he does something that seems odd. And if you don't dig a little bit, you can't understand what takes place. Verse number seven, it says that he cast poor. Well, what that was is it was a, it was a lottery type of a thing. It was casting like dice type of a thing. And it was to find out a special day. In fact, one commentator put it this way. He said, this casting of lots determined a lucky day on which, uh, which to do something was a common practice among or, or, oriental kingdoms. All right, so they cast these lots. He was trying to figure out, what day should I execute the Jews? And so they cast these lots for every day of the year. Started out January 1, January 2. Uh, they didn't have January, February, but you know what I'm talking about. All right, so we went through January, went through February, went through March, April, May, June. And they kept casting them and never came until they got to December. Now, again, they're, they're not our years, but you understand what I'm saying here. They get to the very last month of the year, and sure enough, on the 13th of the last month, hey, that's the lucky day. That's the day. That's the day you need to get rid of those Jews. So he says, all right, good. So then he, the next day he went in to see the king. He said, okay, there is a people among our provinces that do not reverence you. They do not respect you. They do not honor you. They do not obey your commands. And I want to get rid of them. I want to exterminate them. And I want your permission. I'm happy to pay money to get rid of them, and I'll take care of that if you just give me the permission. And the king says, oh, sure, no problem. Here, take takes his ring off, hands it to Haman. And remember, the ring was a stamp of seal. 
of approval. So he takes the ring, writes these letters out to all the provinces of the kingdom, all 20, 127 provinces. It says, on the 13th day of the last month of this year, we are going to exterminate the Jews. Every living Jew on earth is going to be removed and destroyed. We're going to kill them all. And you can take everything that belongs to them for yourself as a spoil. And he stamped it with a king's stamp. And then he sent it out by couriers all over the land as fast as they could go. And we end the chapter, and it says there, the last few words of the chapter, it says, And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. They were perplexed. It was a bad day in Shushan. It was a bad day for the Jews all over the, na- all over the nation as the word spread. And it got all through these provinces. Can you imagine what the people over in Israel felt like? They had already gone back there 50 years ago to rebuild things and establish the, the temple and the life over there in Israel. And now word comes, all the Jews are going to be wiped out on the 13th day of the last month of this year. It was bad news all over the nation. And this is the situation that come up. It all starts here with that little phrase, after these things. And you know, that may be true in our lives. It's just another day. You wake up in the morning, everything seems just like normal, and then all of a sudden things fall to pieces. And we've had some days like that. Some of you have had some pretty bad days like that. Everything seems fine, then all of a sudden, bang, just like that. Whoa, we hit with a big brick. And it seems like the end is coming. What happened? It was all fine yesterday, and then today it's all falling apart. And so this is the situation that happens here. Now, the thing we need to remember in this whole book of Esther is this. God's on the throne. Now, God's never mentioned in the book, but God's on the throne. The book is all about the providence of God, though God is not mentioned. God is providentially protecting and keeping his people. And this whole thing all fits together. And every phrase you read in this book, it weaves together the, the things that God tells us, these little details, even like those two guys that were trying to kill the king. That's all going to work into the plot. It's all going to fit together. And we're going to see how it all fits together and meshes together. And God is perfectly in control. And we need to remember that. When everything falls apart and you get that day that when you wake up and everything caves in. Whoa, I got all these problems and this is happening and I got this and that. and Oh, everything went wrong. Remember, God is in control. God doesn't make any mistakes. And it'll be all right. We need to trust God. God will help us through it. We need to depend upon him. Now, as we look at this this morning, I want us to focus our attention this morning not on Haman, Haman's the old rascal that is causing all the problems. But I want to focus our attention on Mordecai. And Mordecai was a man of convictions. He was a man that said, I know what I believe and I'm not going to change. I don't care what, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to bow to that Haman. No way, I'm not going to. And he was willing to risk everything to stand for his convictions. And so as we look at this this morning, I want us to notice some truths from, some facts from Mordecai's situation here that ought to encourage us to increase our courage to stand for our convictions. Things that we know are what are right. And we say, I'm not going to budge. I'm not going to bend. I'm going to stand for truth. Notice, first of all, Mordecai had settled convictions in his heart. All right. These were not things that were just kind of out of the clear. It was something settled in his heart. As 
a God-fearing Jew, he said, I'm going to bow to God and God only. I'm not going to bow to anybody else. Now, he knew clearly his convictions and what they were. You know, we ask ourselves, why did Mordecai refuse to bow to Haman? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure. It just says that he was a Jew. But that's not a real good example as to why he shouldn't. You look through the Bible and you find many cases where people bowed to others. Um, Abigail bowed to David. David bowed to King Saul. Um, there were others that bowed. So bowing wasn't against the law among the Jews. So there had to be something else here that was connected. As you do a little bit of digging, notice the phrase, God includes out of the clear blue. He doesn't do this for everybody, but he does it for Haman. He says, Haman was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. What is an Agagite? Hmm, that's an important question. Well, you do a little research on the Agagites, and scholars seem to say, it goes back to Josephus, who was a, a historian back in the uh, days of Christ. Josephus and others say that the Agagites were the Amalekites. Ah, we've heard of the Amalekites. Remember God told King Saul, I want you to destroy all of the Amalekites. And God sent Saul to do this because the Amalekites had been God's enemies. They had harmed the Jews. They had been unkind to the Jews from the day they came out of Egypt. And God says, they need to go. They need to be wiped out. And so God told King Saul to do that. Well, he kind of did a partial job of it and didn't do a very good job of what he was told to do. Now, somewhere along the line, there may have been some who weren't home when Saul attacked or who knows. But Haman here seems to be among the Amalekites. The Jews hated enemies for centuries. And this may have been why Haman said, I know who he is. He's an, he's an Amalekite, and I am not going to bow to an Amalekite. No way. They are our dreadful enemies. They have hated us for centuries. I will not bow to him, period. That may have been the cause. Can't say for sure. It may also have been that he refused because the kings of Persia had a common practice of insisting on Bowing, but also a form of adoration, treating them like gods. Well, if that be the case, he said, I'm not going to treat anybody like a god except my god. So one of those two might have been the reason he did it. But whatever it was, he had a firm conviction. He said, I will not bow to Haman. It's a conviction in my heart. I'm not going to do it. They kill me if they want. I'm not going to do it. Mordecai's convictions were not just preferences. They were principles that he held very tightly. You know, as we think about convictions, some people say, well, a conviction is something you're willing to die for. Well, yeah, that's probably true in some cases. I'm not sure that a principle, that a conviction has to be that intense. I think we can have convictions that we may not die for, but they are very dear to us, and we want to hang on them tight, and we're not going to let them go. Whether I would actually give my life for it, I don't know in some cases. Some things we should, but other things, well, yeah, I feel strongly about that. Would I die for it? I don't know, but it's a strong feeling, strong conviction there. And so 
Mordecai here had strong convictions. We too need to have settled convictions. You know, as God's children, there ought to be several settled convictions in our heart where we say, I will not budge on that. Now I'm going to give you some examples of things that ought to be. Number one on my list is that the Bible is God's word. This is God's word. God gave us this book. This is God's book. And it is superior to all other religious books. That's a conviction. We need to say, this is God's word. You know, somebody comes along and says, well, yeah, I got this other religious book that's that's just as good as the Bible. No, the Bible is superior. The Bible is our authority. The Bible is our ultimate and supreme authority for all that we do. The Bible is God's word. That ought to be something we stand firm on and say, not budging on that. I believe that's with all my heart. The Bible is God's word. Another thing that we need to hold dearly is that Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity. You know, there are many of the cults that say, well, Jesus is a God, or he is a good prophet, or he's a nice person, he was a good example. No, the Bible says Jesus was God. Now, it doesn't flat out say Jesus is God, but it does tell us Jesus was accused of being God. He accused of calling himself God. He did works that God only could do. And they said, you're calling yourself God, and we're killing you for that. When, when Thomas saw Jesus after the resurrection, he fell down before him and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't say, Thomas, watch your mouth. That's blasphemy. He didn't say that. He accepted it. Why? Because it was true. Jesus is God. And we need to hold that firmly and say, I believe that with all my heart. Jesus is God. Now, that's fundamental to being saved. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you have no Savior. Because Jesus Christ had to be God in order to be the Savior of the world. So it's fundamental to our salvation. Another thing that is fundamental to that is that Jesus bled and died and rose bodily for our sins. He bled on the cross. He died and was buried and rose again the third day. Why? To pay for my sin and for yours. That is a fundamental truth. We're not saved by anything else. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You can't get saved by being good. You can't get saved by being baptized. You can't get saved by trying hard. You can't get saved by growing up in a Christian home. You can only be saved by putting your faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to another solid foundation. And that is that only repentance and faith in Christ's atonement can save us from eternal judgment on the lake of fire. There is nothing else that can save us. It is faith and what Jesus did for you that will save your soul from hell. Now, if you're trusting, you know, if I ask you today, what are you trusting to get you to heaven? So many people, I ask them that, and they say, well, you know, I'm trying real hard, I'm being good, I went to church, I saved my prayers. That person's not saved. They don't get it. There's only one thing that saves our soul. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid it all. He is our only hope. There's no hope in anything else. 
If you're trusting your baptism, you're trusting your confirmation, you're trusting your, your good works, you're trusting your church, you're trusting anything besides Jesus alone, you're not trusting the right thing. You're lost. Salvation is only in Jesus Christ. Now, we ought to hang on that tightly and say, I'm not budging on that. That is the only way. You're only going to get to heaven through Jesus Christ. He paid the debt for us. That's it. Those are fundamentals that we need to hang on to. Another thing we ought to hold dearly is that God created all things in six 24-hour days 6,000 years ago. That, that's, that's solid. The Bible teaches that. All the 6,000 years may have a little bit of variance in it because there's possibility for a little tiny bit of variance there. But we're not talking about billions. We're talking about you know, a, a few years here and there. But it's about 6,000 years ago, but six 24-hour days. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. He spoke everything into existence in six 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. Now, that goes against the evolutionary ideas. And there's a lot of theistic evolutionary ideas where they try to weave Bible into science and say, all right, well, the scientists say that it was 4.5 billion years ago that it all started. How are we going to work that into there? And they try to weave it into the Bible and stick it in there and twist things and stretch things and and say, well, God said the day is a thousand years and a thousand years. Well, a thousand years isn't a billion. You've got a long way to go here. You're going to have to stretch it a lot more than a thousand years. It doesn't fit. God clearly tells us he created all things in six 24-hour days and it was about 6,000 years ago. You add up all the chronology in the Bible, it takes you back about 6,000 years. And we believe that. We need to hang on that with all of our heart. And you know, that's hard. That, that's challenging, especially for young people in college. And you go to university and they, the professor starts mocking. You know, some professors are out to get believers. Some even have gone so far as to say their first day of class. Anyone in the class today claim to be a Christian? If you do, stand up. Then what are you going to do? If you stand up and he makes fun of you, or they talk about evolution and ideas and they try to cram that down your throat, they, the, many of the secular schools are trying to twist and pervert the ideas and the thoughts of the students to get them to believe things contrary to the Bible. Why? Because if you don't believe in creation, and you don't believe that God started it all, and you believe that we all came by an accident through evolution, You've got no foundation for your salvation. That's why so many people, the devil knows if he can get you to to believe in evolution, then you cannot believe the truth of the Bible. You say, well, the Bible's somewhat true. It's kind of true, but the first 11 chapters aren't. We can't believe that. That's a bunch of nonsense because we know it didn't happen like that. And they deny that. So if you deny the foundation of your Bible and you say this Bible's not God's word like he said, then that means if God's word isn't what it said, then Jesus probably wasn't what he said, and he didn't really die on the cross to pay for your sin. You have no foundation for your salvation. So this is critical. We say, no, I believe what God said in the word. God created everything 6,000 years ago in six 24-hour days. should be a conviction of our heart. Another thing in our heart, we ought to say, I will not deny my faith in Jesus Christ by word, deed, or implication. That's tough. To say, I'm not going to deny Christ by my word or by my deed or even by implication. Just suggesting it. 
It takes guts. It takes courage to stand up, especially when you're in the midst of people that are mocking it. It's hard. It's not easy. But we need to stand for truth. Another conviction ought to be that every day, God wants me to spend time studying the Bible to feed my soul and to pray for and fellowship with Him. Every day, God wants me to spend time in this book to feed my soul. That ought to be a conviction of our heart. And sadly, many people that say they're Christians don't spend time in the Bible. And if they do, they just read a couple of verses to pat themselves on the back, and they aren't, don't pay really any attention to it, and they don't spend any time fellowshipping with God. It's just kind of a ritual. God says, this is our food. This is our manna. This is what gives us strength. We need the book. We need to have that as a conviction. I'm going to spend time in the Word. Another conviction that is being undermined today in our world is that marriage is for life. And divorce is wrong. Marriage is for life. And divorce is wrong. It ought not to even cross our minds. Now, if some of you have been through some of those heartaches. You know the pain of divorce. You know the heartache of all that. It's not good. It hurts. And that's why God tells us, don't go that route. Marriage is for life. And that ought to be a conviction in our heart, especially when it gets tough. And there's times it'll get tough. We need to hold on tight. One last one, and the list could go on and on. We could spend the rest of the day talking about all these things. But the next thing that I had there was that the Christian bo- Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and must be treated as such. This body belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me. And I need to treat it like God's body in a holy way. Not pollute it, not harm it, not tattoo it, not corrupt it. Keep it clean for God. You know, these are just some of the primary convictions that ought to, we ought to hold tightly. And I challenge you to just think in your own heart and ask God, what else should I hang on to? What else should be dear to me? This, I'm just giving you these things to kind of get, the, get you, you thinking in that direction. There's a lot of things we ought to say, that's what I stand for. I'm not going to budge. I'm going to stand tr- true on that. And I'm going to not change my thoughts. So these are convictions, and I kind of stole some of my thunder for the next point here, but we'll work into that. The second thing we see here is that Mordecai stood firmly on his convictions. Not only did he have convictions, but he stood firmly on them. Mordecai sat on the king's gate. Now that's an important statement. When you read the scriptures, ask yourself, why did it say that? He sat in the king's gate. Why didn't it just say Mordecai lived in Shushan? No, it said something specific. He sat in the king's gate. Why? What's the significance of that? We find back in the book of Genesis that Lot sat in the gate of the city. And the people there condemned him and said, You came into some sojourn among us and now you're going to be our judge? Hmm, that's an interesting statement. The king's gate was a place that was commonly the place of Settling commercial and judicial matters and transactions. You go back to the book of Ruth, and you find there that Boaz, when he was to negotiate the, the purchase of 
Naomi's land and the purchase of Ruth as his wife, where did he do it? In the gate. And they called in the people, the elders of the land, they called them in for this meeting. It was in the gate. It was a place for making decisions like this. So it's very possible. We can't say for sure, but it is very probable and possible that Mordecai had a position of some sort of leadership in the nation as a judge or a counselor or something there in the gate of the king. And thus he was there sitting in the king's gate. Mordecai left a great example for us to follow when he said, I will not bow to Haman nor will I reverence him. I will not do it. We see there in verse number 2. He says very clearly, he says, and all the king's servants that, uh, and, that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman for the king so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. And the, and the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake, unto, spake, and I highlighted this next word, daily unto him. Every day these servants were talking to Mordecai. and said, hey, why aren't you doing that? Said, that he hearkened not unto them, and uh, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand. For he told them that he was a Jew. All right? So these servants of the king, every day they're saying, come on, Mordecai, you better bow. Come on. Nope, I'm not going to bow. I'm a Jew. I'm not going to bow. And so they said, all right, we're going to find out how strong you really think this. We're going to tell Haman. So they told Haman. And Haman's reaction in verse number 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he saw scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were, in the, uh, that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now, remember, it covered all the 127 provinces, including Israel. They're going to wipe out all the Jews if Haman can get his way. That's their goal. His, he was after him. So Mordecai stands strong. He says, I'm not going to bow. And Haman gets really fired up and angry and is starts to plot a plan to get rid of not only Mordecai, but all of the Jews. We're going to get rid of the lot. And so, it's possible. And again, I'm only surmising this. It's possible that Mordecai's position in the gate of the king was such that made it a little bit awkward for Haman to just say, off with his head. All right? So, it might have been a, a, caused him a little bit of grief. So, he had to make his plans carefully. And then we see here that as we look at this, you know, we too need to stand firmly on our, on our convictions. To stand takes courage. It's not easy. I'll be the first to admit, I don't like to be pointed out and laughed at. I, I mean, I, I just don't, that's not one of the things I get into. Some people seem to just enjoy stirring up trouble, and they stand up and everybody says, boy, they look at him, he's always stirring up trouble, and they, they kind of like that, and like being in the highlights, and everybody hates him, and I don't enjoy that. Most of us don't, I don't think. All right? We'd rather just have people think well of us. But Mordecai says, no, I'm going to stand for truth. You know, calling the Bible our authority, we need to stand for truth. You know, it's easy. When we're here at church, we're all 
happily here talking about the Bible. And it's easy to say, yeah, I believe the Bible. I absolutely I believe the Bible. And you go to work tomorrow, and the boss says, I want you to do something that's against the Bible. Maybe I want you to cheat on, the, on, the, on this invoice we're sending here. They say, well, I can't do that. Why not? Well, I'm a Christian. Oh, Christian. <laughs> and then it's hard to stand. It's not hard to stand amongst Christians, but it's hard to stand when they're mocking you. It's hard to stand when they don't like it. So it's not easy. It's not easy to stand in the university against the false teachings. It's not easy to stand up uh, to the, the truth of what the scriptures say uh, when, when we're opposed. You know, even people that are in marriages where their spouse is not a believer and they oppose them and they struggle with them and they give them a hard time. And, you know, and yet to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to change my mind. Marriage is for life. I'm going to work through this. We're going to make it work one way or the other. It's not easy. It takes courage to stand. It really does. And the scriptures are full of verses that encourage us to that end. Let me give you a few just to get you thinking. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or epistle. So God wants us to know our convictions and stand firm on our convictions. But you know, if we do that, the third fact I see here is that Mordecai faced severe persecution because of his convictions. Haman sought to exterminate not only him, but all of the Jews. He plotted to kill them all. It was a very serious persecution. And Mordecai's stand would now cost him his life. Many others in the Bible faced similar situations. Can you think of any? Think of Joseph. Joseph was a young man. Amazing young man. Very young. Still single. He's working for Potiphar as a slave. He got sold by his brothers. He's down in Egypt working for this guy as his slave. And his master's wife tries to seduce him to sexual activities. And he says, no, that's not right. I'm not going to do that. And so she frames him and puts him in prison. Joseph was doing right. And he ends up in prison for it. Spent several years in prison because of something he never did. Standing for his convictions. Doing what's right. Another example is Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet of the Lord. And God said, I want you to tell the king that it's not going to rain until I say so. And God stopped the rain. He tells him it's dry. Everything's dry. Everything's dying. And finally, God says, all right, it's time to go tell the king. And we're going to have a showdown here. So he says, call the king up on top of Mount Carmel. So he did. He calls him up on Mount Carmel. They have a big thing up there where the, the prophets of Baal are offering all their sacrifices, trying to call down fire from heaven. Whoever calls down fire from heaven, that'll be the true God. And they jump and they cry and they cut themselves with knives and they beg and beg and beg and Baal never answers by fire because Baal's not a god. Elijah sets up his altar when they're all done and he prays one short little prayer and said God send down fire from heaven and bang God sends down fire from heaven, burns up the altar burns up the stones, burns up the meat burns up everything, left nothing but a hole in the ground. 
God showed himself strong. And then Jezebel heard that after, after all that happened, Elijah killed all her prophets. And then Jezebel hears that, and Jezebel says, before the sun goes down tomorrow, you're a dead man. And Elijah says, oh, boy, that's not good. And he took off running. He went through some hard times. Now, God ended up saying, Elijah, listen, I helped you through all that. I'll help you through this, too. It's okay. But he went through hard times, persecuted. Why? Because of his stand for God. Another example is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, friends of Daniel. The king had made a great big idol. And and he says, all right, now we're going to have a dedication for this idol. And everybody, when you hear the music play, you've got to bow down and worship my idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not bowing down to that idol, no way. And so the music plays, they don't bow down. The servants come back in and say, hey, king, there's three guys out there that didn't bow down to your idol. Bring them in. He brings them in. And he says, what is this? I hear you didn't bow down to my idol. And they said, oh, king, we, we, we cannot bow down to your idol. Doesn't, doesn't matter what you do. We're not going to bow down to your idol. He said, I'm going to play music one more time. You don't bow down to that thing. You're going to go to the fiery furnace. And they said, well, sorry, can you can do it if you want to, but we're not going to bow down. And so in fury, he heats up the fire seven times hotter than ever before. And he throws them into the fire. And God protected their lives. And they came out alive. But they went through the fire for their stand for God. Daniel, in the same book, in the elderly years of his life, as Daniel was an old man, he had a habit of praying three times a day toward Jerusalem. Because he was over in Babylon. He's praying for God to deliver them from Babylon. And bad guys made a plot, made it so that they couldn't pray to God except the king. Daniel was accused, brought before the king. Daniel says, I'm not bowing, I'm not changing, I'm not going to, I'm guilty, I prayed to my God, I'm not going to stop. Threw him into the den of lions. God protected him, wouldn't have had to, but he did. And you know, down through the centuries, when you look down through the centuries of of time since the time of Christ, during the Dark Ages, which were about 400 A.D. up until about 1600 A.D., an estimated 50 million Christians lost their lives at the hand of persecution, most of it from the Catholic Church, because they wouldn't bow to somebody else's beliefs. They said, we believe on Jesus Christ alone. Fifty million of them were executed, tortured to death, in all sorts of terrible ways. If you get into reading that kind of stuff, you can read a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Not a bedtime story. But it's, it's a book that tells you of the ways that they tortured and persecuted God's people. Many have stood for God. And they said, we're not going to bend. We're not going to bow. We're not going to change. We believe this and we're not going to change. It cost them their lives. And folks, the truth of the matter is, we live in an era when we have very little outward persecution. Somebody may say something snotty about us once in a while, but we really don't get much persecution. But the day may come, we will. There are people in our world today, right now, that are being tortured for their faith, being executed for their faith. We live in a privileged society, but it may not always be that way. We need to stand for the truth. 
We need to say in our heart, I'm not going to change. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. He was talking about the last days. And he says that in the last days, one of the, one of the descriptions of people in the last days is that they will despise those that are good. Despise them. Can't stand those goody two-shoes, those Christians. Ugh, can't stand them. That's going to be the last days. And folks, we're living in the last days. And we see a lot of that today. And it's going to get worse. And so God wants us to say, I've got some convictions that I stand for. I am not going to budge. Doesn't matter what. I'm not going to budge. I believe the word of God is God's word. I believe Jesus is the, the, the son of God. He is God in human flesh when he came to this earth. Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried and rose again to pay the debt of my sin. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save my soul. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that God created everything 6,000 years ago. I believe that, that these things are true. I believe that the things that God taught us in the scriptures are right. I'm not going to budge. Folks, what I'm challenging you to do today is to just, in your heart, you determine what it is that God wants you to stand for and say, these are things that I believe with all my heart and I'm not going to budge. Even when it gets hard. Now, as I said at the very beginning, some things may not be worth absolutely dying for, but we hold on them tightly anyway. But many convictions we need to just say, no, you kill me if you want, but I'm not going to change. I'm not going to deny my Lord. With God's help, I'm not going to deny my Lord. And I don't want to be arrogant like Peter was and say, Lord, I'll never deny you. I know my human flesh. I hope I would never deny the Lord. That's my goal. That's my desire. I don't want to deny the Lord. But we ought to have in our heart say, I want to stand truth for God. And so whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's, whether it's in the neighborhood, whether it's in your home, wherever it is, you need to just be willing to say, I know what I believe in my heart. I have my convictions and I will not budge. I'm going to be like Mordecai. Stand strong. Do what's right. Even when all the Hamans of the world are after us. I'm going to stand for what's right. I challenge you to take that to heart today. If you've never sat down before and really made a list of things that you really hold dear, that would be a good thing for you to do. Download my notes if you want to. They're on the web. But otherwise, sit down and make your own list. This is what I believe. This is where I stand. This is what I'm, I'm not going to budge on these things. I'm not going to. But you know, it also comes back to the very bottom line, and that is that if you cannot look back to a time in your life when you repented of your sin and bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and asked Him to save your soul from hell, that's what you need to do. That's the only thing that will save you. That's the only thing that saves somebody. Repenting of our sin, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone who paid the debt in full for us. If you've never done that, you need to do that today. It's the only thing that will save you from judgment in hell. We need to believe that. That's the truth that came from God's word. God does not lie. We need Christ.